Welcome, everyone, and thank you for listening to the fifth season of Camille's Demi Hour. This is a half-hour show dedicated to sharing the Epicurean life and personal stories from Nantucket and beyond. Good afternoon, everybody. Thank you for listening. This is Camille Broderick, the host of Camille's Demi Hour. And today we're going to be speaking with someone very special. Wine lovers are always wondering what region or wine is the next great thing. And over the past few years, a region not known for making any wine shows up on the global scene with wines as impressive as its French counterparts. England. The Brits are known for being one of the top consumers of sparkling and champagne in the world. But now they have sparkling of their own to talk about. And today I'm speaking with Emma Rice, who is the winemaker of Haddingley in England. Welcome, Emma. Hi. Thank you for having me. <laughs> well, you are the first English sparkling winemaker absolutely in the studio, no doubt. And it's just wonderful to have you here. So let's talk about English sparkling and how and when and why. And for those who don't know about this amazing new region, uh, how did this come to be? It's not quite new. It's been three decades in the making, probably longer than that. So if you want to give a quick brief history about, about the sparkling in England. So it was actually a couple of Americans who first started um, sparkling wine making in the UK. They were um, the Mosses from Chicago, moved over to England and they bought a property um, with the plan that they were going to make world-class champagne standard sparkling wine in England and then move on which is exactly what they did but they they were the pioneers 1986 i believe they first planted and their wines have uh, went on to win all sorts of awards internationally and to great critical acclaim as well that gave the rest of us the confidence to follow um and realize that our climate in england is cool it's quite similar to champagne but it's a little bit milder in the winter and a little bit cooler in the summer so we you know we're, we're set for growing quality sparkling wine grapes because you need a fairly high acid, a fairly low sugar to be able to make really good quality sparkling wine. And the realization that that's the best, the best style suited to our climate has led to an explosion of planting of Chardonnay, Pinot Noir, Pinot Meunier uh, grapes in, in England. So what region are we talking about? I know we're on the outskirts of London, so it reaches like east to west. And so where are you? It does. We, Hattingley, we're in Hampshire, which is, uh, an, we're about an hour southwest of London. I'd say by far the majority of the vineyards are planted in what we call the home counties, which is are those counties which um, hug London. Kent, Sussex and Hampshire being the biggest, Essex as well, and, and also further west. The key thing about those counties is that we're on the South Downs, which is the chalk, the chalk hills that come up in Dover as the White Cliffs of Dover. They go under the channel and they, they appear again in France in Sancerre and in, more importantly to us, in the Côte de Blanc in Champagne. Right. It's the same same soil. We have the same soil in England, in the south of England they have in Champagne. Now the farming for grapes, was it always grapes or what was being planted there before? Was this open land or what's the farming history? Most of the large-scale commercial vineyards are brand new. They were they never had vines planted on them before. Mm -hmm. There are a few exceptions to that, but it's only in the last 10, 15 years they've started um, grubbing up and planting with the sparkling varieties. But no, most of these most of these big commercial vineyards uh, were arable land, so growing wheat and barley, um, that kind of thing before before now. 
And what's your history with uh, with winemaking? I know you were a part of a consulting group in England too. What was your entry into the winemaking world? Oh, so I was in the wine trade. The wine trade in England is huge. We we import wine from all over the world and we consume an awful lot. So I was in the wine trade before, um, but I st- initially started in restaurants. And I was working as a wine waiter. I was I wouldn't describe myself as a sommelier. <laughs> I was only 18 years old. It was a part-time job. And I was uh, the wine waiter for a dinner of, at a restaurant that was having a very special anniversary. And um, the first wine, the aperitif served to the guests when they arrived was Krug 1979 from a double magnum. And the owner of the restaurant, he said, uh, if there's anything left at the bottom of the bottle, you can try it. So inevitably, I made sure there was a little bit left. <laughs> I tried that wine. I was, I was 18 years old. I'd been serving it to the likes of Jancis Robinson and Hugh Johnson. They were the guests at this dinner. It was oh, a pretty wow. special, pretty special dinner. And uh, I can still taste that wine today. It blew me away. I mean, the rest of the dinner, there were some um, uh, some other amazing wines as well, which I can sort of vaguely remember. But it was the Krug that really did it for me. Those so, are the wine moments that change your life and make yeah. you become a, yeah. a huge fan. But of course, at that point, there was no there was no winemaking history in the UK. There was no education. Right. Um, there was no formal training for winemaking. It was only when I'd been in the trade in London for several years. I was I was 29. I read about Plumpton College down near Brighton, and they were just starting to do winemaking and viticultural and enology courses. And I signed up, um, went down there, did a full-time BSc, and I was, in, well, I was one of the first ever graduates to get a degree in viticulture enology in England in 2006. Wow, congratulations. That's so exciting. It's amazing that it's modern history right now. So I guess the question people are wondering probably is, what took so long? Is it because of the climate has changed and it's a little bit warmer? I, I've heard that from some winemakers and some other people um, who are related to the England sparkling industry. Or was it the confidence of other people putting it out in the market and having the style be a little bit more palatable now for the, the consumer? It's a little bit of both. I always think and say we have the climate in England now that Champagne had 20, 30 years ago. So they're harvesting earlier and earlier, um, sometimes in August, very early September. We're harvesting end of September, beginning of October, which is traditionally was when the Champenois used to harvest. Mm-hmm. So there is a certain amount of um, warming of temperature, global warming, climate change. That can also bring volatility, though, so it's not necessarily always a good thing. Mm-hmm. Um for us here in England, but um, is also the realization that, you know, we were historically trying to, as, as an industry, grow hybrid varieties that we thought were more suited to our cool climate and the challenges we have. Um, but they don't tend to make really high quality wine. So we were not able to compete on the international stage. Like what kinds of hybrids? Anything that we would know as wine consumers, I don't know. Save our Blanc. Um, yeah, that's a, that's that's one of the. They grow that in New England, mm-hmm. actually. Yeah. It's more of um, a colder climate grape. Yes, it is, yeah. and it can make some interesting wines, but it doesn't generally tend to make international quality. Right, things that have a little more structure, yeah. power, yeah. Yeah. longevity. Are, yeah, exactly. They're not to the international taste. Let's shall we say, possibly. Right. Um, right. And it was that realization that my sales guy hates me saying this. Um, the realization that in England we're really good at growing underripe grapes. <laughs> <laughs> well, it helps people understand what that means. For example, why don't you define what acidity means to you and how the fruit and the ripeness that you may be lacking, like you said, under ripe grapes, reflects in the style of the wine. Okay. So or despite the, the fact that we're 
underripe in terms of sugar content, we're actually super ripe in terms of fruit flavor development because we have such a long, cool growing season. Mm -hmm. So we start, start bud burst in April, very similar time to champagne, but we're harvesting you know, anything up to six weeks later than they are. Um, oh. So we have low sugars, which is what they were doing in champagne 20 years ago. Now they tend to be picking slightly higher, higher sugar levels. But the acidity is key. So to us, um, we're, we pick on acidity rather than sugar. The sugar is incidental. It is what it will be. Uh, we can't do much about it. But the acid, we have to we have to manage the acidity very carefully. And we have to... Yeah. Because it can make or break a wine. It can make or break the wine. Right. So it's canopy management through the growing season mm -hmm. to open up the canopy to allow the, the acidity to ripen um, and to develop and mature. And then in the winery, we do... We're, everything we do is based on managing that acid level because the acid is our friend it keeps the wine alive for the long lees aging period that we require in bottle yeah. but it also can dominate the wine and can and if you don't have the fruit flavor development you don't have the other layers of complexity that come from the winemaking right. you know you're in danger of producing some fairly thin acid wines uh, which you know there are still people doing that um but the you know the the education, the training, the quality of the winemaking in England generally is definitely improving. And we are learning how to manage that acid to uh, our advantage. So a lot of the great houses, Moet, Vauvclicot, even Krug, even though it's a little mm -hmm. smaller and it's a higher profile and price point, all have house styles. That's how they define them. They have a house style. So, you know, when you get a Moet or you get a Clicquot, it's going to taste a certain way. So... I think this is coming up with how are the English sparkling defining themselves. And I think I heard you say there was a moment when you started feeling that you you could taste Haddingly. Can you tell yeah. that story? So 2015 vintage, um, it was it was nothing, nothing that stood out from the vintage <laughs> particularly, except when we were doing the blending in the summer following. So that was our fifth vintage. So we were still pretty young. We're still trying to make vintage wines. And we were tasting through all of the batches that go into our classic reserve, which is the equivalent of Moet's non-vintage, mm -hmm. for example. Which has a blend of some past years. Yeah, so we're right. starting so to put for those who don't know, most of the wines and champagnes that are out there, I'm calling wine champagne because technically it is. The Brut Classic or the regular Cuvée is a blend. Indeed. So yeah, there's a certain amount of wine from previous vintages that goes into that to try and, try and ameliorate the, the, the variation between vintage. And there was a moment during that time when the whole winemaking team, we were sat around the table having you know, done some trial blends and we were doing it you know, in, in silence, not trying to influence each other. And then we compare notes afterwards. And at one on one of the blends that we'd put together and we tried, we read out our notes and all of us had written this tastes like Hattingley. And it was the moment we sort of recognized ourselves in the wine itself. It was a really quite special moment. And it was fantastic to suddenly realize that, you know, we have a house style now. <laughs> this you is have our... a terroir. You we do. have a flavor. Yeah. And so how has your winemaking developed from that? So we try and replicate uh, year to year what we do in the winery to make sure that we do have this consistency of house style, particularly for the for the classic reserve blend. But we have evolved the winemaking. We start using more oak. We've used oak from the word go. We've always had oak barrels in the winery, um, but now we probably use more than any other winery in the UK. And they're always old barrels, uh, never brand new ones. And that's key, I think, and to our style is this. Well, not so much the flavor, but the, the texture you get from the oak. It's a, it gives a, a softness to the wines. And it, although it doesn't reduce the acidity, 
it reduces the apparent acidity in the, in the mouth and it's one of it's one of the many ways in which we you know we're managing that acid and we're using the oak to to soften the wines and add a layer of complex complexity that you maybe don't find in a lot of other sparkling wines you're listening to emma rice she is the winemaker from Haddingley in england and we're hearing firsthand what the English sparkling market and industry is is about and how it's coming to become something that is on the world stage comparable to champagne. So what is it like traveling around and talking about English sparkling? Well, last year we came to Nantucket and I'd say 99% of the people we met or who came to talk to us had never heard of English sparkling wine. They didn't even know we grew grapes in the UK. That's not unusual even in England still. I mean, we're, we're a tiny industry. We're growing hugely, but we're still at the very, we're in the, in the infancy of the industry. I mean, being in the wine world, it was exciting to hear about it. I love champagne and to, to see any other new sparkling hit the market because it's such a growing segment of the market in general, sparkling. I mean, the Cava's coming out today and the Prosecco's are delicious. And um, Cada Bosco is a beautiful wine from, from French Accorta that makes wine in the similar style as champagne and uh so you are using the same methods and the same styles and yeah we we're not hidebound by the traditions that the champenois are so we can we take the best bits of what they do right and then we or all the regulations i mean there are not, yields and the, rules we, and we don't have those same regulations <laughs> no um we're in we're still part of europe <laughs> for how much longer we don't know but uh, we are still part of europe so we do have to follow some european laws but they're really lax in england by comparison to the champagne region so we take the, the best bits of what they do and use those and if we don't think that what they're doing is is right we change it because we we can you can we can yeah <laughs> <laughs> that makes your job a lot easier yeah uh, so talk about the wines that you make because you've won some great awards and i think you should Toot your own horn for that. <laughs> so there's a competition that's held in London every year called the um, Champagne and Sparkling Wine World Championships. It's judged by three of the top sparkling wine judges in the world. And it's been going for five or six years now. And we, as Hattingley, are the only non-champagne house to win world champion by style in that competition. And we did it with our 2011 Rosé and we did it with our 2011 Blanc de Blanc. Bravo. Um, which was it's fantastic. And we've won all sorts of other medals mm. and gold medals and trophies for our wines in the various international competitions, which is great and really gratifying for me and for the team who, who I work with. But what I say that, you know, the making the wine itself, actually being in the winery, blending up the wines, for, you know, wines which we've nurtured from their infancy when they came in as grapes. And it's that's the that's the really best thing about my job is is blending up those wines and then seeing them on the market and tasting them with people at events like so this exciting. in Nantucket yeah. and getting people coming, oh, my God, that tastes really good. And I'm like, yeah, it does, doesn't yeah. it? It's <laughs> <laughs> great. And so you make a Blanc de Blanc, the regular cuvee and the rosé, which I think I just I had tried those three. Is there mm -hmm. anything else that so the the top reserves? wine we make is our King's cuvee. It's a prestige cuvee. We only make the 2013 vintage. We made 1,496 bottles and it's 100% barrel fermented, which is, again, as I say, really unusual in English sparkling wine and even in champagne to a certain extent yeah. to, to do 100% barrel ferment. And it's an absolute joy to blend because, you know, I've got 200 barrels in the winery. We lay them all out flat and then we just go around tasting each barrel and marking them with a bit of chalk, uh, which ones are going to go into the King's Cuvee. 
And the volume and the varietal makeup is dictated by how the barrels react, have reacted with the wine that year. Mm -hmm. And it's not always the same barrels. It's not always the same parcels. But Mm -hmm. it is is always wine um, that comes from our home vineyards. And those home vineyards that we have are actually some of the, the hardest to ripen vineyards that we have in the UK. So when those vineyards do well, they do exceptionally well. And the wines they make are just really, really fine, really elegant, really linear. And not all of those parcels will end up in the King's Cuvee. Right. But it's that reaction, the interaction between the wine of the vintage with the barrel. Interesting. And so how much of the land do you own and then contract with other farmers? So we have 25 hectares, which or 23 hectares, sorry, which um, we either own or manage. You know, mm-hmm. we do all the work on mm-hmm. them. And then we, we also have long-term contracts with suppliers in other counties. Mm-hmm. So all of our vineyards are in Hampshire. Uh, then we have contracts with people in Kent and in Sussex and in Essex, which is where we get um, a lot of the other grapes from as well. The long-term partnerships, it's really key to build up good relationships with the growers and you want to know that they're going to do a good job and they they have the incentive they have the same quality focus that we have and that's another really exciting part of the job is going around to visit all these wonderful places around the country and building up relationships with people in the wine industry are generally quite nice people so and were these people growing wine mostly just for local consumption or what were they doing before for example selling to you Uh, They planted for us. So we have got we have found landowners, found farmers who are existing farmers. They have land and they're looking for diversification. Right. Wheat prices have gone down um, or they happen to have a a small area of their farm, which is looks very suitable for vineyard. And so we approach them or they might approach us. Right. And then we will test the land and and have a look at the soil, have a look at the uh, frost risk, everything else. And then, um, yeah, if if it's going to work. Then we'll give them a long-term contract. They plant the vines and then we take the grapes. Yeah. It's so exciting. Uh, you're listening to Emma Rice. She is the winemaker at Haddingley in England. And we we're just talking about how the relationship with the farmers work and how much land they own in comparison to other of the, the champagne. I say champagne. I was telling this earlier to Emma that I really put them in the same category because the the wines are outstanding. But how do you compare yourself to the other rising brands in England? So we're one of the largest. We're about top five largest producers in the UK. We've only been going 10 years. Um, and When was your first vintage? 2010. Okay. So we're on, heading into our 10th vintage this year, which is exciting in itself. It is exciting. Yeah. So we're, we're all very you young. You actually get to see things. I mean, it, it, wine is such a farming is such a long term commitment and, yeah. and, and labor of love that it's hard to see the changes happen over a year or two, even 10 years can be hard. Especially with sparkling wine, because not only you have to wait for the vineyards to mature to produce a crop, you also then have to wait for the wines to mature. And they, that can take years. Right. We have to sell them for, for maybe three or four years before we can even think about selling them. That's why Krug, you mentioned that amazing, mm. that amazing bottle you tried. I visited Krug once and they have a library, their wines that they just have as their reserves for all their Grand Cuvées. And- so to, to compare us to uh, the other leading producers in the UK, um, you know, there are a couple who have been there doing it longer than us and there are some who are younger than us. Uh, we all have quite different styles, I think. Essentially, we're all making, you know, traditional method bottle fermented sparkling wine. So there are certain similarities, all using similar grape varieties. Um, but I think we all do have a unique style and... Again, I say oak is is what we do at Hattingley. Um, other vineyards have different approaches. But the key thing is I think we all have to be focused on quality, and most of us are. So that that's It seems the- so. They're all in the same price point, which 
may not represent quality, but you all are entering at a level that seems like you're out beating each other in a good way. I mean, if you're all great, you just want to get better and better. So, well, also the what the wineries that export are usually the bigger, more serious commercial ones, right? The ones that made it yeah. this far, yeah, right. Uh, because most of a lot of the wineries in the UK are quite small, producing maybe only a few thousand bottles. That they're never they're never going to have the volume to bring it out here to the states. Yeah, but they're still potentially making very good good wines. But um, I, I hope and I pray that the the wines that do end up yeah. on the international market are are the serious quality focused producers. Yeah, um, it reflects yeah. the whole the market. But English people love their champagne. Traditionally, you're one of the largest consumers. So are your neighbors your biggest critics or how are the English taking this wave of great wine? I don't think the Champenois uh, really are that fussed by what we're doing. I mean, we produced in 2017 uh, 2017 as an industry about 6 million bottles. Uh 2018, it's estimated that we've produced about 16 million, which is a big jump, but it was an exceptional vintage. That's still a, you know, it still doesn't really, it's a drop in the ocean compared to what the Champenois produce. It's a drop in the ocean compared to what the champagne, level of champagne that we consume in England. Right. We we import about 30 million bottles of champagne, 120 million bottles of Prosecco, God knows what else from Carver and French Quarter and the rest of the world in terms of sparkling wine. So we don't have to steal very much of each of those markets right. to sell everything we can produce. We are producing more each year as an industry, so we have to be careful. We don't dilute uh, the brand, but right. um, I think we're a long way off that. Yeah. And But what about the English drinkers? Are they Do they think they have a good competition with the, uh, with the French? Yeah, we... We still, even in England, we still come up against people who don't even know we grow grapes in yeah. in the country. It's less and less, and more and more people are, are becoming aware of it, and more and more people are prepared to spend the kind of money that we're asking on on our wines. There's a certain snobbery in England that you know that we'll never take over from Champagne because that's the ultimate. Um, they've done a very good brand management job on. <laughs> yeah. Champagne is one of the most recognizable words in the world next yeah. to Coca-Cola and and uh, one of the most legally protected. So we are very careful in England that we never refer to ourselves as British Champagne or British or English Champagne. We are definitely making English sparkling wine because the Champenois are notoriously litigious about this as yeah. well. So, you know. <laughs> There's a lot of history there, and, yeah. and I respect them. <laughs> and we're also very proud to be making an English product, a British product. We don't want to be a, considered just a, a copy of Champagne. We're making something that we think is uniquely British, um, oh. and we're proud of that. Right. So. People say, how are you going to brand English sparkling? And you're saying, we're just going to call it English sparkling. Well, it does exactly what it says on the tin, doesn't it? Right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, is there anything else you want to share with the audience? And if they were to try it, or if you want to share the message instead of saying, Yes, we actually do make sparkling wine, but what would you really want to say and think about the future for English sparkling? Uh, I think you, you've got to try it. This is the new, we're the new frontier of winemaking. Um, you, you have to try it to appreciate the quality, I think. Um, and I reckon it will replace champagne as the celebration drink of choice, or I hope it will. Um, certainly in England and hopefully here in Nantucket as well. Oh, great. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm glad you had a nice stay and a good visit. And uh, I'll continue to spread the word because I am a fan and it's uh, it's very exciting. And uh, I have a little bit of English in me, so I have to uh, spread the word. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> 
And if anybody wants to buy your delicious Hattin Lee, where can we get it on island? So on in Nantucket, it's available in town at the Epinay Wine Store. Oh, fantastic. With an awesome selection with um, Kurt and Jenny are always there to help you out. And thank you again for listening to Camille's Demi Hour. Tune in every weekend through Labor Day on 89.5 Nantucket's NPR station, Saturday mornings at 1030 and Sundays at 1130. If you want to hear the full episode, you can find me on iTunes. Cheers.